We're at the end. We are at the end. It's the last, actually, it's not even the last episode. This is after the last we're doing, episode. We're doing a final, yeah, final we could, episode. We could not stop. And we could not stop recording. We've got our delicious Japanese whiskey with us. I'm not going to say the brand name because I was informed not to, but it's amazing. Thank you, Jared, for, mm-hmm. for uh, obliging. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you guys have given us about 12 questions, 12 to 15 questions that we're going to go through. We've gotten a lot of questions during this this show um, and a lot of repetitive questions about how the show started yeah. and like how do we raise money and you know how much did we raise and how do we pick our guests and all that and so and you guys have, have, have asked us all these questions we've got the questions up on a giant screen and Jared and I are just gonna do our best to not make fools of ourselves yeah and and I think we've got liquid courage here so I think mm-hmm. we're ready to ready to rock and yeah. roll what do you yep. think should we jump into this sounds good so the first question is by at Furjon M he asks what is the story of how High Resolution came to be? What inspired you to create this video series in the first place? Um, All right. That's a big one. That's, I mean, it's, it's a big one. I, I, I remember the very first conversation we had where the whole thing spawned. Mm-hmm. And I remember being hysterical because I was at WeWork at the time. I was building, you know, I was like, I'm really proud of the team that we built at WeWork, the design team. And teams are so hard to build. Like, the chemistry is so important. They're delicate ecosystems. You need to edit the team constantly. Uh, But part of the thing about getting teams together is you need talent pools. And I kept looking back at the talent pool that was coming through, you know, people that were applying. I just remember calling you one day uh, on our quarterly phone calls, our our (laughs) check-ins. And I was just like yelling on the phone, like, yeah. like what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. These designers don't know what yeah. their job is, yeah. right? Uh, do you remember that call? I do remember that call, and I echoed right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it had been a while since I had like recruited for any design team, but my last leadership role was Teespring Design, yeah. Yeah. and um, we, we face the same challenge. It's like when you are looking for talent within your network, you yeah. tend to find it because that's who you tend to surround yourself with, really smart people. Yeah. And as soon as you look beyond that, there's a mix of people. Yeah. Um, and I think the pattern that we recognized and that you like yelled really fucking loudly about on yeah. the phone um, was designers not understanding what role they actually bring to a business. Yeah. And in turn, businesses not understanding why they should invest in design. Exactly. Um, and I just remember us complaining for about two or three hours, and then we realized that we were doing what we don't like to do, which yeah. is complain and not throw up a solution. Yeah. And then... Yeah, well, to me, there, it's, it's, a, it's a clear, there's a clear kind of character trait that I've recognized in myself over my 32 years of existence, is that there's a, uh, there's a relationship between the ratio of how much I whine about something mm-hmm. and how much I can do about it, right? Meaning, uh, I don't whine about things I have no power over, because what's the point? Mm-hmm. But if I whine a lot about something, it probably means I could do something yeah. about it. Yeah. And I was whining a lot about this problem. I think that, to me, was the moment where I was just like... Jared, you and I, we've got to do this thing. Yes. Let's just finally, let's stop whining about it. Let's stop moaning about yep. it. Um, and uh, let's just do the thing. And I think, so that was the, that was the spawn of uh, what turned out to be this, this amazing journey that uh, has taken 11 months yes. for us to get there. Almost, wow, yeah. Think of that. We started, Almost a year. We started September, October of last year. Yeah. So, so about 10 to 11 yep. months uh, to get through the whole thing. The inspiration... For this was a fewfold. First, uh, schools are inadequately equipping designers to think about what their real job is. Mm-hmm. I think this. I think you and I agreed mm-hmm. on that. Uh, 
fairly fairly early for the last few years at least. Um, next, I actually don't think that there were enough resources out there for designers. Did you watch the the Envision uh, documentary? Yeah, I saw Design Disruptors. Okay. When I saw the documentary, I was so excited because, and John Maeda said something in that in that documentary, if you recall, where he said, you know, uh, typographa- or ty- typographers have Helvetica, industrial designers have Objectified, yeah. and digital designers don't have something yes. in, in vision. You guys are doing yeah. the thing. Yeah. And like, that was the first time, at least for me, where it just like it clicked. And I was like, someone's got to do that and just do a deep dive on digital design, creating mm-hmm. digital products, and you know they have such a position in our lives, they're such an important position in our lives today. But um, anyway, I'll stop talking. Now you tell me about, about you know, your, your inspiration about the show and what inspired you. Yeah, so I've always been a fan of podcasting. Oh. Um, I actually attribute a lot of my early career to a podcast we had a few years ago called The Industry Radio Show. Yeah. That was based off of a blog I did with a friend of mine, Drew Wilson, called The Industry. Mm. And um, I remember we stopped doing that show back in 2013 when I moved to San Francisco. And there was this void for a long time um, that I felt I wanted to talk about design again. But I wanted to do something differently. And what we did with that podcast and what a lot of great design podcasts do is they focus on the background of the designer, Mm -hmm. right? So the first question tends to be, how did you get into design? Mm. And or tell us about yourself, Mm -hmm. right? And the intention is for a five minute answer, but we love talking about ourselves, so it ends up being like 30 minutes or the whole episode. Yeah. And the information is very useful because some people get to see themselves in someone else and realize that they can actually go out and do that thing. right? But for people who are, who are already doing the thing, there are not many takeaways as far as how you can get better at your job today. Yeah. And we recognized that we had this opportunity to do that. Mm. Um, so when we had this conversation and we were like, okay, let's stop whining, let's do something. Should it be a podcast? Mm. Um, should it be a show? Yeah. If it's a show, is it a limited series? Is it seasonal? Yeah. Whatever, right? Um, and I just remember the amount of constraints that we put in on this project in the beginning. I love that we and did that. all of those things, honestly, that's one of like, like, you know, there's a question later about takeaways. That's honestly one of the biggest takeaways. Yeah. Like, you know, hold yourself accountable by telling other people yeah. and um, setting really, really hard constraints. Right. And um, one crazy constraint we gave ourselves was 25 guests. Yeah. Right. So this is not an ongoing thing. Yeah. It's not going to be 186 episodes or 900. It's 25. Yep. Right. Um, and then the other crazy one was video. Yep. <laughs> which was like... I, I, I yeah. love how naive we were yeah. about video. Yeah. You know, thank goodness we found Searle. But yes. video is so hard. Yeah. Like it's, it's, especially traveling around the country, talking to people. And we had these insane two-hour windows where we had to zoom in to, you know, Instagram oh, or yeah. Facebook. I want and, to talk about that at some point. Yeah, and like, and, like, and like Paul yeah. and his team over at Searle just trying to figure out the lighting, trying mm-hmm. to figure out the best angles for us to shoot at. You know, this is the first... We, the, the moment we walked into these rooms was the first time we saw the rooms. Mm-hmm. So we had to assess within about 20 minutes. Well, we had to assess within about two minutes what the best angle was to mm-hmm. shoot from. And within yep. about 20 minutes, set up all our equipment. Yep. Yep. Um, and th- that was really hard. And we were doing at one point two, maybe three interviews a day. Yeah, we had one three interview day. And right. I remember... I literally died that night. Do you remember the cucumbers on my eyes? Yeah. Oh, no, tea bags. Yes. It was tea yeah, bags. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like every night, it was like yeah, this ritual. Bags, I tried it one night, too. Just yeah. it out. <laughs> it works, that by was, the way. Yeah. Tea bags work. Yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, for John M., um, how did this come to be? It was a pure passion project. Yes. I, was, I had a full-time job. Jared had a full-time freelance job. Like, this, we did this yeah. out of love, man. Like, yep. we... 
I actually don't know if John's a man, but he is. He is. Mm-hmm. Well, we did this out of love, man. Like we came out of this. You know, this was this was this is what you know the 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 best kind of passion project yeah. you can imagine. You know, it's in a, it's in a, a an area where you can influence it. It's an yeah. area you understand deeply, and you get to meet the best people at the thing. Yes, in the world. Yes. Um, so I hope that. I mean, I, I hope that that was satisfactory, but that's how it started. All right, let's move on to the next question. All right. So the next question is by at Nishant Bazard or Bazard. Mm-hmm. Um, how you how did you select guests and convince them to be part of your series? All right. So we have this crazy, super organized, super detailed spreadsheet Thanks that shows you. all this stuff. This is all you, man. So um, I hope we're yeah we're definitely going to share that publicly, and you can pretty much just copy paste it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we realized that a lot of the subject matter that was going to come out of this project was going to be thematic, mm-hmm. right? Um, we knew that there were emerging themes like storytelling, uh, process, design education, uh, research, data, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to make sure that we covered all of those topics. So we listed out the topics, and we just listed out all the names of the people who we felt can cover those things. But we don't know everyone. Yeah. So then we went and reached out to every single one of those people and asked them for two to three recommendations. Yep. And then the list was like, Hundred, high hundreds of names. That's right. Um, and then we just went through each of them and basically vetted them. I remember like every night Bobby and I would like take 10 names each yep. and just go and see if we can find content on this person. Yep. If we couldn't, we moved them lower on the list, not because we didn't feel that they couldn't speak to it, but we couldn't validate ahead of time whether or not they can, they can actually speak to yeah. the subject with authority. Um, the people who we found, we would vet them, move them through this phase, and when they hit a certain level of validation, we yeah. would then make the first approach. I think I, I remember the, the, the ultimate validation to me is when more than three guests exactly. mention the same yep. name. And then we like plus one, plus one. Yeah, so, yeah. so Maria Judice, you know, she mm-hmm. wasn't on our initial list, but enough guests, because yeah. I, like, I, I, I wasn't familiar with her work. Yeah. Um, and Facebook, I mean, her work at Facebook and Hot Studio, you know, Facebook has so many stars there. Mm-hmm. But enough people said her name yep. where I remember hanging up the call, I think it was with Kate Aronowitz or something where we were actually talking to her about it mm-hmm. um, and we, we we called each other back and yeah. we were like okay who is Maria yeah, Jadis yeah. this is like the third time <laughs> this is, this she's been mentioned in like two days yeah. and she was an amazing guest yeah she was yeah um, Yeah. so once we got them to that stage we made the re- we reached out to them um, some of them were just on board uh, some of them like took some, you know, some finessing, some conversations. Yeah. Some of them, oh, actually, a lot of them. This was the first time they had ever done an interview of this caliber, like yeah. on video or even just an interview altogether. Um, so it was a lot of work to help calm them down and realize that, like, hey, you can do this, That's and there's right. a lot of benefit for you and for the audience that we're trying to serve. That's right. Um, and then some constraint that we actually put in was one person per company. That's because right. Because we recognize that when you think about companies like Google, yeah. Facebook, like. Um, IBM, Airbnb, different cultures, some overlap in process, but different approaches to design. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure that the series was like, you know, this mixing pool rather than like, you know, 20% one company and like 1% everyone else. Exactly. Uh, so that worked out which well. Made it, which made it hard. Yeah, that made it hard. I remember companies? Facebook was like, Facebook was hard. there were like 20 people on the list. Do you remember was, Luke's, do you remember Luke's phone call with us? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I loved, Luke, your episode was just so was amazing. But he was such a good sport. Yeah. You know, Luke, Luke told us he, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time in front of cameras and stuff. Yeah. And he said, "Wait, so you're you're gonna you're gonna take an hours long yeah. content? And yeah. you're not gonna edit it down?" Yep. And we're like, "No, it's gonna yep. be it's gonna be back to back. We're gonna share everything." And then what we realized is our calls with these people yeah. averaged thirty minutes. That's so right. So we started telling them it's just really two of these calls. Yeah, that's and right. And then they're like. All right, all right, all yeah. right. You know? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, we um, when we when we talked to these guys, first of all, we didn't take a single one of these phone calls for granted. No, 
we, I mean, we respect the shit out of every single person. I mean, I'm, I'm stunned that we got some anyone. of the guests. Well, not Any, anyone. I listen. I anyone. I, I don't like, think that low of just, myself. If someone just like randomly calls you up and says like sit down in front of a camera for an hour. Okay, you're right. right? You, you know what? Because that's just a weird like that's a crazy thing. For yeah, because like a lot of them assumed it was audio. Like, oh, okay, like. Should we just start recording right now? And it's like, no, 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 no. I'm with We're you. flying to your state. I'm We're with coming you. in your office. We're going to sit down in a room with you and ask you questions on camera. That's fair. With three cameras okay. facing you for one hour. Yeah. That's a big ask. That's especially for people who don't usually do that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's how we picked our guests. It, yeah. it, it took us about four, three and a half months to, to nail mm-hmm. down our final list. Yep. Um, and uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, it was a lot of, you know, after work hours, Jared and I just making a lot of phone calls to a lot of people mm-hmm. and uh, putting constraints around the thing so that we had a real deadline. We had a real pitch. You know, we weren't, we didn't go into these phone calls with them asking, what is this podcast about? We're like, oh yeah, you know, we're doing yeah. a design thing. No, it was... I mean, we had a. I remember our pit, like our pitch was so refined. By oh, the yeah. time we got to like the fifth yeah. call, like we knew exactly like what yeah. the how the how the top design leaders approach, communicate, and deploy design in right. their businesses every single day. Every single day, like we got that Boom. you know nailed down. Yeah. Anyway, um, Nishant, I hope that uh, that answers mm-hmm. your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, if any one of you guys are starting your podcast, if you're starting a design podcast, really any podcast, and you're gonna have guests on it, you've really got to treat that guest like they're the world, because they really are. They don't owe you anything. They don't owe you their time. You know, especially these kinds of people, the best people. You know, time is a very valuable resource yes. for them, and everyone wants their time. Yeah. And so, when they when they decide to sit in front of a camera with you, you really want to make sure you've got your shit together. You really want to make sure that you've got your A game. And I think Jared and I uh, got better over yeah. the series, but. I, I, I feel very comfortable saying that we brought our A-game from the very beginning. We yeah. didn't take anything for granted. And I think the guests, every guest we spoke to, they smelled it. Yep. And they just knew yes. that this was going to be real. And you follow up. That's right. If they do it, you follow up, you thank them. If they don't do it, you follow well, up and, and you, you thank, thank them because they gave you time. All right, let's move on. Let's move yeah. on to the next question. So next question, how did you find your sponsors? Um, okay. This is, yeah. uh, so this is kind of a chicken and egg problem, <laughs> right? Uh, a lot of people that start podcasts, the first thing they start thinking about is like, how am I going to afford doing this podcast? Mm-hmm. I actually think that there's, actually it's probably not a chicken and egg problem. It's just a question of priorities. You don't want to go to a sponsor, you know, especially people like Squarespace who, who are so, like, and by the way, our three, actually four amazing sponsors. We've got Squarespace, IBM, we've got Envision, and of course, Searle Studio, Searle Video. Um, you don't want to go into these conversations uh, with uh, you know, kind of a, a, an aloof mindset that you're yeah. still trying to figure out what you're trying to do. Yes. The first call, we, I mean, I remember talking to Squarespace the first time we reached out to them. We already had 14 of our guests locked, mm-hmm. locked in. We had days, we had times, we had PR commitment from these large companies. It was there was no question that this thing was going to happen. The only question was was Squarespace going to ride the wave with us? Um, and I remember sitting down with Squarespace, talking to Mimi, who was leading this thing there, uh, and talking to Derek. And and um, I had the deck, you know, our our sponsor deck, and the sponsor deck was here's how much money we need. Here's why we need the money. By the way, here's all the faces of people that are going to be on mm-hmm. this thing, and they're all recognizable faces. Yep. Um, and and here's when that first video is going to air. And by the way, we're looking for a senior sponsor and a junior sponsor. And here's the and we'll release the deck to yeah. you guys so you can see how we framed all of this. Yeah. Um, but when Squarespace looked at the deck, there was really not a lot of questions. Yeah. You're right. But, yeah. The, the question was actually, so why did you do this? Yeah. It was because all the questions around the logistics were answered. Were answered. Yeah. We, we there was no room for is this going to be real? It was so clear that we're going to manifest this thing. It was yeah. going to be real. Um, and 
I don't know if it was lucky or that we were just prepared, and I like to believe it's because we were prepared, but we got 100% of the sponsors um, that, uh, that we went after. Mm-hmm. And I will, a giant shout out to Searle Video. Searle um, was actually legitimately our first sponsor before Squarespace, yes. if you remember this. Yep. Paul, thank you so much. You have Paul yep. sitting behind the camera there. Yep. Like he's giving me a thumbs up. He knows the first call we had. Yep. Paul, you know, Paul, Paul asked a lot of questions around the, the, uh, the show, and uh, I knew that it was going to be hard to get someone to commit to doing video because video is so expensive, tens of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. for 25 interviews, hour-long content needs to be edited mm-hmm. down, all that stuff. Um, you know, it's just a really expensive project for a company like Searle. But I, like the frame that we had with Searle was, and I, are you okay with me saying this, Paul? Uh, the framing that we had with Paul was, we have a few guests. We don't know if we're gonna get any other sponsors. Mm-hmm. We can't promise that we will. But here, give us your first number that you think this is gonna cost you to do. And he gave us the number, and we didn't flinch, and we said, okay, no question. Here's what we'd like to do with you. If we don't get sponsorship, we're gonna give you an ad spot. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you get your money back uh, by getting clients, by looking at the show. Uh, if we do get sponsorship, we'll give you the ad spot and we'll give you exactly the amount you asked for. We're not gonna give you any less. Like we're not gonna, gonna there's not gonna be a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul, I, I think you appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you believed in us that we were gonna get the, the sponsors. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and we did. Yeah. And we, we, we got the, you know, we got the sponsors. Yes. Um, and then the calls with Envision, you know, Envision, obviously, yeah. I, I think you were on the call. Yes. Uh, with Envision, I mean, they've got a content strategy for their company yeah. that's yep. that's amazing. And and they they saw exactly what we were doing. And yes. they just, they, Clark is, he sent me an email. He said, so this is how much of a, he's, I remember Clark sending me an email saying, uh, uh, so this is a $70,000 email, because we were asking them for $70,000. Mm-hmm. And Clark was like, so this is a $70,000 email. I was like, yep. He was like, all right, let's do a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember that yeah. so well. It's just very fond memories that I have of, uh, uh, of, of the sponsor. So do you yeah. want to add anything to that? I think the other crazy thing is that we actually started filming before we had sponsors locked down. I remember It was that. just Searle. It I was just Searle, that. right? Um, and I remember when we were making our deck, like yeah. we, we had the version that we gave to IBM, to Squarespace and Vision, yeah. and we are telling them, it was actually crazy how we sell this thing because we were like, this is the next big piece of design education that's, that's right. gonna hit our industry. That's right. So it's really a matter of whether or not you wanna be a part of it, that's right? right? Which is funny, but you present a deck and there's some seriousness to that, right? That's right? If you just come out and tell a sponsor, hey, give us money, their natural response is like, for what reason? Like, what am I gonna get back, mm-hmm. right? Especially if uh, the audience that we're going to be giving them is an audience that already knows about their brand, right? right? Um, but what we were telling them was that the content that we're putting out is unique. It hasn't been done before. Right. Yes, there have been podcasts, there have been interviews of these people potentially. Yeah. But the deep dive conversation we're going to have on how design actually makes an impact in business, this is the thing that you want your brand associated with. That's right. Um, but looking back, it's it's scary, but I'm so, I'm so proud of the confidence we had going out and filming 20% of our episodes That's without right. a single sponsor outside of Searle. That's right. Um, and they just came They just came in. I remember we were like in an Uber from like one interview in Brooklyn to another interview in Manhattan. That's and right. on that ride, like Bobby is like, he gets an email and he's like, guys, 
Squarespace. Squarespace is it, right? And we're like, I we're remember like freak, that. We're like freaking out, and like our that. Uber driver's like, look at these guys like talking about, right? I saw, and, and Paul then, was in the car. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. But, then, but then you finished the email, and it wasn't actually locked in. It was just like, hey, we're moving forward with the conversation. He was like, guys, we're oh, um, <laughs> I so well, remember that. It's not, it's not bad news. Like they're kind of in, right? But like, yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was great though. It was great. It was great. But we'll definitely release the deck. And do you remember what Gentry said about naive obviousness? The bell curve that Steve Jobs talked about. Yes. It's like one of my biggest takeaways yes. from the show. This project was that to yes. me. It embodies it. Yes. Um, and maybe we'll get to naive yep. obviousness yep. in a bit. But okay, should we move on to the yes. next question? Yep, next one. Okay. Um, so Furjan M. and Farrar Gueles, or Gueyes, uh, ask, how did your understanding of design evolve over the course of these interviews? What insights influenced the evolution the most? Okay. So... Evolution, there's evolving, there's like clarity. Something that crystallized for yeah. me. So in some sense, it was an evolution of my original thought. Um, is the fact that the digital design space is such a young industry. Right. Um, so it's very clear that we, we are all still figuring it out. When you think about design heroes for people, right? The thing with um, defining your heroes is you feel that there's no fault in them. Mm-hmm. Like they have everything figured out. Yeah. Um, and then you sit down with this person, you have an actual conversation with them, and you realize, no, they actually do have a lot of shit figured out, <laughs> but they also have questions themselves, right? right? And I, would, I remembered like the 20 to 30 minutes we would spend just like having casual conversations with our guests before we start recording, right. and then the natural one we'd have afterwards. Yeah. I actually wish we recorded all the after conversations because sometimes they were amazing. Yeah. Um, but you realize that there's a lot of things that we're still figuring out as an industry, right? Yeah. Even simple things around like our titles, yeah. Like one person calls himself a UI UX, another person calls himself product, another person, things like that, still being figured out, right? Yeah. What does the designer's track look like? Yeah. Should we be? Should everyone become managers, or is there something like a lead or a principal track, right? Yeah. Um, all these things are questions that all these design leaders are still facing every single day. Yeah. Um, so that evolution of thought or that clarity of a of, of a thought. Um, really relaxed me when it came to my personal design career. Where I was like, okay, there's a lot of things that I'm still figuring out, yeah. but we are all actually still figuring it out together. Yeah. And that actually creates a new opportunity for the industry yeah. um, where we can be more honest about these big questions we still have as a community. Mm. Um, instead of this like, you know, notion of like, we, we hide knowledge from each other, I feel, right? Like mm. s- some person over here is like, well, we have all this figured out. And or, this- or worse, purport to have knowledge that we don't have. Exactly. Well, that's, that's the worst, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that is something that uh, evolved for me would not be the word. It would be clarity. It's like, and, and it was a good thing to get clarified for me. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, we, there's a lot for us to still do. There's yeah. a lot for us to still figure out. Yeah. Um, and a series like High Resolution just brings more clarity to that. Absolutely. Um, or, or as you might say, we make we bring it into a slightly higher resolution. <laughs> Sorry, that's. I'll give you dead air, you so should, that can just take totally, it. You should totally. Just let that. Just let that. Just, just let people listen to that. Oh, for a it's bit. terrible. Why um, it's, I'm blaming yeah. it on the alcohol. <laughs> um, and that's yeah. I think that was a big one for me. Yeah. It kind of leads into this other thing too. It's kind of like one B. Yeah. Um, which is. There, there are very few questions in design yes. that have an absolute answer. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, so if you're like, how should design process work? Yeah. We heard five to ten different variations. There's no canonical the series, example. Right? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. That was a big one. That's, like, that, was, that, that was, by like to me, that was the biggest. Yes. 
And I love, I love that we framed every episode with the same first question because to me that, you know, to me that framed uh, my biggest insight that you just touched on, which is design, at least in our industry, doesn't have a canonical law or rule of what it is, what yeah. it should do. However, I will say Jared Spool's answer uh, on what design was to him was my favorite, where he said it was the, the rendering of intent. It's so clear. It's just so simple, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what you strive for is to be able to explain things in like really simple words. And I think Jared mm-hmm. really did a good job of that. The other thing that I think um, I like was a massive aha moment for me. Daniel Burka's episode where he where he talks about design being the scientific method for mm-hmm. a business. Okay, why is I that such a big that. deal? Yeah. So so why is that such a big deal, right? Yeah. Um, it's so easy to just overlook words and just say, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, scientific method of the business. I get it. You're testing things. You're prototyping things. Yeah. You know, and then you eventually find answers or or you disprove something. And it's yeah. really important to be able to disprove things. The thing that I loved about that is it gave me and really hopefully everyone watching, the vocabulary to take the people on the business, to use terminology they understand. So when you say things like design thinking, Mm -hmm. they might not understand it because the word design is kind of looked over, right? But when you say things like scientific method, well, we studied the scientific method in school. There's a whole class of Okay, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm perked up, I'm listening. What what do you mean by that? They lean in and they ask questions. And it's, you can design that vocabulary by using words people understand in order to bring them and be inclusive of what design is. Mm-hmm. That was like a massive breakthrough for me, which seemingly is like, it's a small detail that to me, like if, you know, and, and if you guys go back and you listen to every episode again, which we really hope you do, because there's so many nuggets. I've, I, you know, I've been mm-hmm. listening to older episodes and I'm getting new stuff out of it, but listen for the simple ideas. And I don't think that that's an obvious thing to do. The simple ideas are the ones that you can translate and bring it to the company. The bigger, more aspirational ideas are harder, but the way you, you get you know million men to walk a thousand miles, as that as the saying goes, is with that first step. And mm-hmm. to me, the first step is how can we listen to each other, and how can I make it so that you hear me, mm-hmm. and that I'm not talking over you. Yes. So scientific method for a business just stood out to me as one yeah. of those one of those moments of many moments yes. inside of the yeah. series. Okay, um, sh- shall we move on yes. to the next, next question? question? Fantastic. Um, Next question is by also for John, uh, at for John M. What are the most important takeaways that you would want to share with the upcoming wave of new designers? Well, we kind of touched on this in the last question. Okay. But understanding that there's no, there's no one answer to any question. Right. Um, I notice when I interact with any design newcomer, whether they're in college or fresh out of high school or just discovered design yesterday. That's right. They come with a set of questions with the expectation that you have a bulletproof answer. That's right. right. Like, you give me this, I will do that verbatim, and then I'm right. Yes. Um, And they're let down when you begin your answer with, it depends. Mm. Like, ugh. Mm. Right, like fuck, now I have to think about the scenario. Which I know is one of your favorite things to do. It's like, well, it depends. It depends. depends. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like, you know, when you come into design, design is messy, mm. right? And design is a methodology that's best applied to mess. That's right. Right. Um, so you got to get very, very comfortable with mess and that's ambiguity, right? right? Mm-hmm. And when you get an answer, it's really more of a suggestion and a piece of advice, mm. and you have to figure out what situation that's best applied to, right? right? So if you are entering design, come with the come with the mentality from the very beginning yeah. that everything is not going to be clear to you, yeah. and Especially in the digital world, I don't think it ever will be clear to you. If you think about the kind of work we do, we are never done. That's right. right? So it's never like, okay, what, you know, I know there's a part of the process that says define what done looks like, yeah. but that's just so that you know when you've hit a milestone. 
You're never actually complete. Um, So that's one big thing to keep in mind. Um, Another thing is I think the uh, self-starter attitude is actually very, very, very important. Um, It's great to find mentors. And I advise everyone to find someone that could honestly even just be your parent to be a mentor for you. But don't expect mentors to do the work for you. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I get emails where it's like, hey, like, can you mentor me? Mm. And then my response is like, on what? Sure. Right? And then it comes back with like two or three just very blanket statements. And I'm like, that's not, that's not enough for me to move on. Exactly yeah. what do you need help with? Right? Yeah. And I'll try to give you some piece of advice on how to approach that situation. But at the end, it's you that has to go through it. Right? Mm. Um, so finding people and getting knowledge from them, reading resources, whether it's medium articles, books, videos, whatever, is only going to do, say, 10% of the job for you. Now you have the knowledge, you actually have to go out there and do the thing. That's right. right? Um, and doing the thing, honestly, is something I feel is not taught or pushed enough with yes. people. Right? Where yeah. it's like, I have the knowledge, I'm done. Yes. That, that's, that's not it. As a matter of fact, I, I think people who operate without the knowledge are actually more rewarded in the long term Completely than people agree. who have the knowledge and never make the first step. That's right. Um, so yeah, those two things. Like yeah. being comfortable with ambiguity and yeah. realizing that like a lot of the work is just doing the work. Yeah, I um, I so agree with you, man. Um, and uh, the the couple of things that I that I take away for, like if I'm a younger, um, you know, younger is an interesting term. If I'm a less experienced designer getting into the design field and I'm serious about it, if you're yeah. really serious about it, uh, the thing that Gentry, one of the things Gentry touched on um, was egoless design. Yes. Uh, there's, we are compelled as human beings, we are just compelled to want to be right. Okay. This is not a character flaw per se, this is just a normal state of being. Mm-hmm. But Tom Kelly touched on a slightly bigger idea, or maybe a slightly, expans- a slightly more expansive idea the idea yeah. of vujade. <laughs> right, being yes. able to look at something for the thousandth time, but seeing it for the very first time, and allowing yourself to be ignorant to a lot of what you think is going on based on your prior experience with it. Mm-hmm. I think if you're an inexperienced designer, you don't have any of that prior baggage. You have no experience to lean back in. You should love that. You should go into situations and just allow yourself to listen, allow yourself to observe yeah. and try not to form opinions too quickly. Yeah. I think that's really, really, really important to understand. I don't think that's very obvious to a lot of people. I mean, I was 22 at one point. I was designing when I was 16 and 22. I remember being 16, needing to be right, like needing to want to be right, like mm-hmm. showing people, like, look, I know what I'm talking about. I've been doing this for a year now. You, you better <laughs> listen to me now, right? Yeah. That, that, but that's like such a, it's, 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 it's a human thing to do but the better thing to do is to acknowledge that everyone has that and then to acknowledge that that the better thing to do is vujade. Allow yourself to look at things with fresh eyes. Um, I think actually admitting, you, you just mentioned it, like admitting that it is natural is a very key point. Absolutely. Because when you don't do that, well, when you do that, then you realize you're fighting against human tendency. That's right. When you don't do that, you feel like there is something that you are missing that everyone right. else has. Like, like, like right. you're alone in this, yeah. in like, this, in this how problem. How is everyone else able to do this thing and not me? It's like, no, they actually all started exactly where you are. Absolutely. And they built that muscle. The sm- some of the smartest people I know have this problem. But the people that are smarter than them... Tell- have- they, they, they fixed, fixed it. it. They, they fixed, fixed it. it. But they had the same problem. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, let's yeah. move on to the next question. Um, the next question is by Jenny underscore Ho. Okay. Uh, a human computer 
sorry, HCD, human centered design. Human centered. Sorry, I'm thinking of like uh, uh, HCI for some reason. Uh, uh, a human centered uh, design mindset can take time to nurture. Mm-hmm. As a design leader, are there specific mindsets you still find tough? Uh, yeah. You mind if I start sure. on this one? Yeah. Um, the uh, so. I actually don't think the human-centered design mindset is something that needs to be nurtured per se. I actually think it's the most obvious way to design if you if you if you think about it, right? Designing for people by watching those people and then fixing problems for them is way easier than you going into a hole and you know being the lone genius and coming out with some big idea, mm-hmm. which, which is almost never how design works. Actually, I'd say that's never how design mm-hmm. works. Um, that's art. Uh, it's 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 really hard. But uh, you're you're right in an aspect in that it's not that it takes time to nurture. I think it takes time to get. Like it, it takes time for people to understand that that is kind of the way that, that is the way that you should yeah. be you should be doing design. But the the latter part of your question is, as a design leader, what mindset do you still find tough? Um, I by, maybe by by far the mindset I find the hardest is to meet the expectations of what how non designers think design managers should work. Meaning, I find it really hard to not be in the work. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like this manager versus doer, manager versus maker mindset. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to stay in the manager side. I am compelled to contribute in the pixels, in the field, lead from the front, be in the thing, be in the thick of it, mm-hmm. uh, observe, draw conclusions, and contribute in that way. And yeah. I think it's it's hard because people that report to you want the chance to do it themselves because they want to make you, the manager, look good. They want to show you that they know, you know, you, you see what I'm saying? Yes. Like they want to show you that you hired the right yeah. person. But in reality, you know, that's, that's stemming from a place of ego. Uh, the better thing to do, I think, is just is for managers to say, "No, I'm rolling my sleeves up. I'm getting in this with you, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about it. And you're gonna hear me out, and I'm gonna hear you out. And I don't know that I have the answers. I probably don't have the answers, but I need to be a part of this in order to in order to to contribute. I find it really hard to sit in the back and kind of watch yeah. the thing happen. Um, I'm so so. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that necessarily answers your questions, but I feel like I'm more of a maker manager than a manager of makers. Hmm. Does that make sense? Interesting phrasing. Yeah, phrasing's fun. Phrasing is fun. Can you uh, re- restate the question? Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, the human-centered uh, design mindset yeah. can take time to nurture. As a design leader, are there specific mindsets you still find tough? Okay. So I guess in the first statement, it's implied. How can you nurture? When I hear human-centered design. The other word I also hear is anthropology. Mm. Um, and anthropology, as we know, is the observation of people. But, you know, you made a point earlier about how you frame something yeah. has a huge impact in how it's received Yeah. Uh, when you were talking about the scientific method. So for anthropology, another term I like to use, which is more accessible, is people-watching. Mm. Lots of people like to people watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you go into any coffee shop that has a window mm. that you can see outside. There is two out of three people sitting on that like bench, yeah. staring outside, looking at people. Yeah. Right. When you look at people, you recognize things. You observe things. Right. After a while, you recognize patterns. Yeah. And those patterns either look strange to you, they confirm earlier assumptions, or they disprove 
previous assumptions, right. right? And the next step, which is where design comes in, is acting upon that information, yeah. right? Um, towards a goal that was previously defined. Mm-hmm. So if you are working on a product or a project and you have to deliver on goal A, people watch, yeah. right? You can people watch by bringing people in and doing user research. Um, you can people watch by doing surveys, right? Mm-hmm. You're not actually observing the person, but you are receiving their response. Yeah. Um, there are many tools, usertesting.com, whatever it is, full story, whatever it is, it's people watching, yeah. right? The next step now is recognizing the patterns that you identify, right? Um, and acting upon that information. And of course, there are other things that play into it, structuring your questions, knowing what to ask, et cetera. Yeah. And Rochelle touches a lot on this in, yeah. her, in her episode. But once you have that, then you act on it. And all the things that we get excited about with craft, that comes then, right? right? Um, so I believe that when someone thinks about human-centered design or anthropology from that lens, yeah. where it's something that you are actually, just, it's natural. It's mm. natural to just observe people because we're naturally curious, mm. right? When you realize that's the inherent skill and you build upon that, it's something that just takes time, but it's something that you're capable of doing. That's it's right. not something that's actually hard, yeah. right? Um, as far as a uh, uh, was it method or methodology? What was the second part? The, the, something that's hard to develop. Yeah. What are the mindsets that's hard, that's still difficult for you? Yeah. So I try not to uh, I try not to focus too much like the names of these mindsets. Yeah. It's just more like totally. how am I thinking? Of course. But one that is oftentimes branded and it's kind of like Bujade is beginner's mind. Mm. Beginner's mind is something that you inherently have when you start anything brand new mm. because you've never interacted with the thing before. If you are working on a side project for a year or five years in, if you're working at a company a year or five years in, you kind of lose that ultimately, Mm. right? Because you've been looking at the same shade of blues, oftentimes a joke. Um, You've looked at the same flows, nothing's new to you, right? So when you come in, you can tell, you can sometimes tell how long someone has been working on a product by how they enter a meeting, right? There's the person who comes in like super giddy, like, okay guys, like we're gonna solve this thing. And then there's the person like, oh fuck, like another meeting on this project? Like what is this thing gonna be over, right? Um, and you like dissect that attitude, and a lot of it is actually the absence of beginner's mind. You feel like you have it all figured out, and that you're just operating or iterating on like a two percent window. Yeah. So you're like, this is a waste of time. So for me, that is actually something that I fight with all the time. Mm. Now I'm aware of it, so I try to catch myself in the moment, but I honestly don't do it all the time. But I think that's one of the best things that I can work on myself. Sure. Because if I if I do that, it leads to a lot better solutions. You have that same energy and excitement when you face a challenge. You realize that like, yes, you know, you're not throwing away all the work you've done before, but you realize that like, we're clearly not done, otherwise we would not be having this meeting, right? right? So imagining I did not touch anything in the product before this thing, and I'm looking at this thing for the first time, what would I do differently, right? And it's actually interesting, if you catch yourself in the moment and you make that change, you will always see something that you can improve, always, right? Um, So yeah, it's very hard. But for me, that's something that I'm investing in, and I think that if anyone invested in just that, yeah. it will, they will actually see the returns in their designs. Completely agree. Should we move on to the yes. next question? Uh, Jenny, I hope that helped. <laughs> um, in your opinion, what separates a strong designer versus a weaker designer? Again, underscore, Jenny underscore help. Okay. Uh, okay, so there's no absolute. This is just one of many. Um, so, <laughs> I love that you needed to breathe for a second. It's like, oh God, yeah. it's such a long list. <laughs> pick your top two. Pick, yeah. pick, pick your yeah. top two. So there's, um, there's the designer who realizes that they are part of a whole 
And then there's the designer who thinks they are the whole. Mm. The designer who thinks they are the whole is the weaker designer. Sure. This designer is the person who literally operates in a hole, right? <laughs> in a hole, H-O-L-E, Yeah, yes. in a hole. They yes. don't sit near anyone, yes, right? Yes, yes, um, They present final designs. Yes. Um, they are very argumentative, yes. right? Um, which is not a bad thing, but it's never to arrive at a better idea. Yeah. It is to defend the one that they've already vetted, yes. right? Um, they do not have a beginner's mind, mm. right? Th- that is them in a hole. Mm-hmm. There is the designer who surrounds themselves with other people and realize that they are part of a hole. Yeah. And that hole, um, sorry, that's, I've been saying hole, circle. Yeah. <laughs> that circle is comprised of research, mm. content, sometimes BD. Last night we were having a conversation about legal counsel, yes. right? Engineers, yeah. product managers, they all shaped this product, yes. right? Um, and the designer who recognizes that makes better designs and is a stronger designer. Mm. And I think a big reason why we have a lot of the former is honestly because of design education. And mm. I'm not blaming design education here. That's, that's part. Sure. But in a lot of the programs I've seen, what ends up happening is you are surrounded by other fellow people who are aspiring to become designers, which is great. You're building your early network. You're learning together. Yes. But you go into those rooms and oftentimes... The first thing that you recognize that's missing is non-designers. Mm-hmm. There's no engineers in the room. There's mm-hmm. no product managers in the room. There's no research. There's no data. Right? Yeah. So you leave and you are used to being surrounded by designers. Mm-hmm. So you join a company as the sole designer. There's no other designer. Therefore, I'm sitting by myself. Yeah. Or you join an existing design team and you only ever operate with them. Yeah. Because it's not natural. has not been taught to you. Right? Or the flip side, someone who found design on their own. And was working out of like you know their basement or their home and figuring stuff out. You are, you likewise are not surrounded by these other people, so it's hard. It's not natural, right? Um, but recognizing that, recognizing that you are not the only person that shapes a product, you are one of many, mm. um, is very critical. And when you surround yourself with these people, you make better products. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, great. Um, I. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned whole versus unwhole designers. I think. Uh, and there's a there's a there's a point in which having a specialty makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But I, I think some of the best designers in the world try to make themselves H W H O L E like whole, as in yeah. understanding the entire spectrum of yes. design, yes. understanding how to do every phase. And they might not be experts in the whole thing, but being curious um, about how each of those steps work. You know, uh, doing some of the user interviews and working with real researchers who do that full time. Mm-hmm. You know, doing uh, some of the programming, working with the developers, deploying code. Where you know, Cap talks about this in in, in his episode where mm-hmm. everyone at Etsy had to at some point mm-hmm. write code and mm-hmm. deploy code. Even uh, their office manager. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing some of the the visual design. Maybe that's not your strength, but actually doing it because you want you're 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 inquisitive. You want to yes. learn how to get better at it. Right. It also helps you empathize with those people. That's right. And 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 it's. You know the the counter argument to that is like focusing designers that are just focusing on all the wrong things. You know, uh, doing work that's going to get an award, like a like a visual design award. Yes. Um, okay, so so let's step back for a second. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. If you're a great designer and your work's getting awarded, you like you deserve yeah. it. You should get awarded. But to do work because the outcome is that you need an award. Um, you know, this is why I left the agency world. This is why, like this, and, and this was. I left the agency world eight years ago, and I'm sure things have changed over the last seven or eight years in the mm-hmm. agency world. But while I was there, 
the 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 number one Im- the best impact a designer can have in an agency is winning an award because awards yield yield uh, uh, higher paying uh, customers. Well, it, it yields a, a, a little logo on your site that says, "Yeah, I just got the con lion," you know, yeah. the gold con lion, and then and then L'Oreal wants to give you two million dollars yeah. because they want you to design their yeah. next campaign. Yeah. I get the business sense of, uh, of that, but designers, um, you know, like the intent of why you're designing and uh, uh, what you're designing and should you design something. Those questions really matter and I think weak designers or weak des- weak-minded designers don't ask those questions because they're, what they're focused on is what's gonna get me paid, mm-hmm. what's gonna bring me, like what's gonna put, push me up the ladder into the next seat that's available in the leadership position mm-hmm. so that I have control over more. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was there. I was there when I was twenty, you know, twenty-two, twenty-three. I remember wanting so badly uh, to to run design of this agency that I was in, or run like a component of design. I didn't even know what the fuck design was. <laughs> like, I didn't have this level of understanding that mm-hmm. the understanding that I have right now. Like, I, I, I wasn't a full-fledged designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my strength back then, back then, was visual design. Uh, but of course, um, after leaving that world, I saw the real world and how businesses operate, like real businesses, how they operate. Um, and it allowed me to uh, take a step back, uh, you know, tone down the, the volume knob in my head that said, you know, it's ego, 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 you know, I want to push forward, I want to be the best, but turn that down and just study design. And that's what I've been doing since I was 22, year old, 22 years old, it's a decade ago. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've just been studying how the best people design, how the best businesses think about design. Um, and I think great designers do that. Right, like I think, and I'm, I'm, by no means am I saying I'm not a great designer, okay? But um, if you aspire to be a great designer, this is something you have to do. Turn down that ego knob, turn up the empathy knob, uh, turn up the knob that says, you know, I'm going to listen to you and I want to learn from you. Uh, and I think over time, you know, over the long arc of your career, and careers span decades, um, you know, I don't plan on retiring anytime soon. Over the long arc of your career, you look back at those earlier years and you'll be so proud that you yeah. design things for the right reasons, yes. you learn from it, you worked with great people, uh, and that the actual impact of your design was measurable in a good way, right? And I think strong designers look for that. Okay, the, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna combine the next two questions. Uh, next two questions were asked by at Stuart SC. Uh, what role should design play in the political process? That was his first question. He actually asked us four questions, but we're gonna go to two, we're gonna combine them, and we'll talk about design and politics. So what role should design play in the political process? And the second question is, how can design elevate the voices of the marginalized, and what responsibilities do designers have for doing that? Uh, so let's combine this into a design ethics, design in politics. Where should des- how should designers be thinking about playing an active role in civic engagement and policy making? Versus and slash slash, um, how can designers be more inclusive of the marginalized? So, uh, do you want to kick that off? Okay. Um, so as far as involvement in politics and policy making. It's it's an interesting area because it's inherently biased. Hmm. Like you have an opinion, um, and you are designing to promote that opinion. Yeah. But that's again, that's a perfect example of where design can actually play a role. 
um, if design's purpose is to uh, solve a problem yeah. and to identify an intent and intent and create a, a, a feasible outcome, um, then whatever position you are advocating for, mm. um, whether it's state legislator, state policy, or um, uh, national policy or international policy, um, you have to identify the side or the thing that you're trying to promote, yeah. um, and then you have to define actionable goals that you can achieve. That's right. And then all the things that we've said before come into play. Mm-hmm. Observing what exists. I remember in our um, conversation with Andrea Mallard from mm-hmm. um, Omada Health, uh, she was talking about how Omada entered the health space, which right. is very, very old. Lots of bureaucracy um, and billions of dollars, potentially even trillions of dollars in that industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that they did was they did not approach that industry with the uh, disrupt mindset, which is a term that you often hear in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. We're going to disrupt this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they respected the incumbent. They realized that it was the incumbent for a reason. At some point, it thought it's it thought it was disruptive, yeah. right? Um, and they recognize what is good, yeah. they preserve those things, and then they recognize opportunities for improvement and for innovation, and then yeah. they innovated there, right? Um, so likewise, when you are trying to, uh, if you're doing anything in politics and you've defined, uh, you, sorry, you've recognized an opinion that you want to take, you've um, observed an opportunity to improve in that space, and you want to now apply design to that, yeah. you're applying that process. You're not coming in to disrupt, you're coming in to observe, well, what currently exists. I love that. Right? Yeah. You're coming in to observe what currently exists, yeah. what works, what does not work, and how can we iterate to a better outcome. Yeah. Right? Um, so that might be taking a bill and breaking it down and realizing the entire thing does not actually need to be thrown away. Maybe 40% of it should be preserved because it's really good. Yeah. Maybe the people who decided on that 40%, they were onto something, so let's involve them in redefining the other 60%. Yeah. Right? Um, and iterating and realizing that whatever you now put forward is not exactly perfect, but it is an iteration and you can continue. Right? Yes. So this is design applied as an abstract methodology to the creation of policy. Yes. As far as like a designer now sitting at their computer Absolutely. in Sketch or Photoshop or whatever tool we're using nowadays, um, that's a little bit different, right? You're not designing policy. Yeah. Um, but you can design the campaigns and the rallying and the attention that's brought around policy that is being changed. Yes. Um, and that is where opinion heavily comes in now because you're taking a side. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with taking a side. right? When you take a side, um, your goal now is how do you make this side as visible as possible? And that is your goal. So you are, again, applying the process of designers. Well, the people who we are trying to reach, where are they? Are they even on the internet? Yeah. Right? Should we be getting back to physical Absolutely. print and going down to, into streets and putting things on the wall? Yeah. Right? Maybe that's how we can actually find them. Or are they online? Where are they spending their time? Is it Snapchat? Is it yes. Instagram? Let's put things in front of them. Right? That is, you know, it's, 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 it's broad because it's a very, very, like, we can spend hours talking about this. Yes. But if we're talking about policy, there is a way to apply the methodology of design on an abstract level to that. Yeah. If we're talking about the application of like digital design as, as what we do, yeah. um, then it is about identifying what is your goal, which starts with what is the side you're taking. Yeah. Um, what is the thing you're trying to achieve? Is it visibility around a cause? Is it um, information? Is it behavioral change? Is yeah. it that you know, people currently see it this way and you're trying to help them see it that way? Yeah. When you define that goal, you apply the process. Um, as far as the other thing that came up, which was uh, like marginalized, yeah. Um, so Christy Tillman spoke a lot about this in her episode. Yes. Um, and there was one insight that she made, which was just so crystal clear. Earlier, you were talking about taking the very simple statements and not overlooking them. Mm. This was a very simple statement she made. Yeah. She was like, if you were designing for sixty percent of X, yeah. and you have a whole bunch of Y in the room, yes. You can't. 
what the fuck, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you're not going to be able to solve that thing yeah. because Y is not X. Yeah. So how do you solve for X? So hold on, involve- I, 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 I want to make sure, I want you to rephrase that and everyone listening, I want you to re-listen to that okay, because, yeah. and let's not use X and Y. All right. Let's use th- something identifiable, lati- identifiable okay. like Latino yeah. and white or black and white yeah. or Latino and black. Okay. Something people, rephrase All right. that, All please. Right. If you were designing for black. Yes. And you are white. Yes. There is only so much you can understand about black because Absolutely. you are not black. Yes. How do you solve for black? You involve black. That's it. Right? That's if you it. Are, Simple if, idea. Right? If you are, um, if you are building, uh, you know, okay, you have a company right now. Yes. Right? And you are, are you talking about it? Uh, sure. Did you just decide in this moment you're talking about? Great. Like, are you you're fine? Okay, Why not? Cool. Okay, so you are in the medical industry now, yes, right? That's and right. you're focusing orthodontia. Okay, yeah. right. Um, your teeth, your teeth look pretty good. <laughs> I've got one. I've got a bad boy. In the front. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think my teeth are pretty good. Yeah, I like you, got, you guys. Are, you guys have pretty good <laughs> right? teeth. I do smile okay. a lot. All right. So if I if I worked at your company, yeah. right? There's only so much I can understand. I've never had braces. Yeah. Right. So if you're like, hey, we are building a product that is going to improve this for you, and I was the one saying this to someone yes. who has tried braces X amount of times, they're like, well, what can you possibly tell me Absolutely. about improving the process? You've never gone through that yourself, right? Yeah. And like, I can't lie and say that, like, well. Empathy, like I, I, I can, I can feel it in my no, right? Like, I can say that, like I don't have the thing, yes. but me applying empathy is actually involving someone who has and saying, hey, can you work with me and brainstorm with me so that we can solve or sorry, create a solution that actually works for this person, yeah. right? Um, and I think it's actually as very, it's simple as that. Like, if you're trying to solve for marginalized and you are not the marginalized, involve the marginalized, yeah. right? Um, and this can be, uh, you know, this can be hiring designers or, or, or product people who represent those communities yeah. because the benefit there is they have the same skill set and methodology as you. Yeah. So they are there and they're now going to apply the same framework of thinking. Yeah. Or if they, if you can't find them, use your research. Involve those people. It's like, hey, you know, we recognize this problem for you. First mm-hmm. of all, do you actually have this problem? Because we can't really say with absolute certainty because we've never experienced it. Okay, you do? Okay, can we get one minute of your time, like, you know, if it's 10 minutes a week or um, uh, 10 minutes a month or whatnot, to just come in and see what we've done so far and let us know if the thing that we are heading towards is a solution that will work for you. Right. If not, help us course correct. Right. If so, give us the green light. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's it. Yeah. I, this is this is such an interesting place for me because uh, I, I generally don't outwardly like relay any of my political views or, or like yell about yeah. politics because yeah. they're mostly not in my control, right? So as I said earlier, yeah. the, how much I whine about something dictates how much control yes. I have over it. Mm-hmm. I don't control policy. I'm not a U.S. citizen, so but um, I I completely understand. Uh, the need for people to to vocalize their angst uh, in, uh, in 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 a uh, effort to uh, safeguard those who have been marginalized. But mm-hmm. uh, my understanding of this problem is, as long as we have party politics, I, I don't care how great of a designer you are or you know what your message is. As long as there are parties involved, you will always have two to three to four different sides of an argument, right? Yes. Um, so so if I just left that on the table for a second, I don't see us getting rid of our parties anytime soon. So if I'm being realistic, I don't know that we have a whole lot of control over the outcomes. What you can hope for is, you know, thank goodness, you know, we live in the United States, so every election is cyclical, and every four years you have a chance to redeem yourself <laughs> on either side, 
right? So under the last eight years through Obama, the right wanted to redeem itself, and it did through Trump. Uh, and before Obama, the right gave us Bush because they wanted to redeem themselves through Clinton. Um, the point is where I think we as a society can maybe have the most amount of control is to inform the electorate, right? To, to, to empower the electorate to think and ask questions. And as long as we have parties, the questions they ask will be biased. They won't reach out to the other side. Um, and they won't think about, you know, you have two eyes. Perspectives, the word perspective, the way I think of perspective, I think of eyes because you've got two eyes. You can't shut one eye and expect a full view. You kind of need to keep both eyes open. You need to reach out. You need to understand the other side. If you can't vocalize the other argument, you don't understand the argument. Yeah. If you can only vocalize your argument and you scream about it, uh, you're not listening to the other yes. side. And it's a shouting match. Yeah. And if you want change to happen, you're not going to bring change through a shouting match, right? Intent is also so important, right? Um, let's use the uh, heroin needle. If I designed a heroin needle to deliver heroin in a painless way, you could argue that that's bad design. But you could also argue you could use the same needle for vaccinations, painless vaccinations. So your de- the delivery mechanism uh, matters, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the intent, my intent was bad, which makes me a pretty bad designer, but the thing that was designed in, in and of itself is not bad, yes. right? Um, now, you can you kind of look at the, you can, you can, you can frame a lot of uh, the logic of what gets said on, in, in kind of similar terms. You know, when you talk about things like tax reform, healthcare, open borders, uh, immigration, uh, today, you know, uh, Trump announced that he's banning uh, trans people from the military. Like, that's awful. And there's a lot of stuff that's either right or wrong. And you really can't argue whether things are right or wrong when it's crystal clear mm-hmm. it's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Like, banning trans from the military, like, to me, that's wrong, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, that's an absolute. That's an absolute. Yeah. But here's the problem, Jared, is that I actually believe that most of the other arguments are in the gray. I don't think they're black and white. Because yes. if you listen to the other side. And I, you know, I have a lot of friends with diverse perspectives. I know people, like I'm friends with people that voted for Trump, right? I spend time with these people. And you listen to their arguments and they sound logical. I mean, it's batshit crazy, but in their bubble, that argument makes sense, right? Now, when you extrapolate that and you look at it, you have the same problem on the left as you have on the right. In our own bubbles, our arguments make the most sense. The best thing you can do Lose parties, teach people how to learn, ask questions, and uh, find answers. And I think the best thing we can do is to, uh, is to promote the study of design in schools, right? If you're a young person in a school mm-hmm. learning history, learning math, learning literature, you should also learn design because the framework of design forces you, if you do it right, forces you to make no assumptions, yes. draw a hypothesis, yeah. Healthcare is, you know, universal access to healthcare is good or bad. Open borders are good or bad. So you, you, you frame your, your hypothesis and then it gives you the lexicon. It gives you the vocabulary to just kind of ride the rest of that path into finding an answer to whether or not you can debunk your hypothesis. And if you teach people how to do that, and most people don't know how to do that. If you teach people how to do that, that's how, like, it's got to be a bottoms up thing. You make change happen where people feel the pain the most, but the way you make that change happen is not by shouting, it's by teaching people how to think. And I guarantee you, if I put you in a room with a Trump supporter, if you put me in a room with a Trump supporter, we can have a perfectly logical conversation without shouting at each other and walk away 
understanding each yeah. other a little yeah. bit more. It's, I remember in Rochelle's episode when she talked about debating yeah. and how um, she actually would encourage the designers at Spotify to engage in debate Yes, um, because it was kind of attempting to break down this notion of you have a very formed opinion yes. about something and it's so formed and so hard yes. that for you it's an absolute, it's a truth. It's no longer an opinion. Mm. It is an opinion, but you don't actually perceive it that way anymore. Yeah. Um, and the issue with that as a designer is that you lock yourself in. You will never actually realize that there was a better version yeah. because you're like, well, I, I already have it, right? Um, and with debating, actual debating does not actually, there, there's arguing and then there's debating, sure. right? Debating, one of the best skills you can develop is just listening to the other person, yes. right? You actually debate more effectively. Because what ends up happening is a lot of what you say is more you helping the other person clarify their own thought yes. rather than you actually dishing out your own truth, yes. right? Um, and, you know, you spoke about, like, design being taught in schools. Mm. Uh, I think that version of design, at least for me, is what I think design really is, right? Where it's not assumptive, you are observing, and then based off of the, those, assumptions, um, sorry, those observations, you are, um, you are making steps towards some outcome, yeah. right? Um, I would actually argue that if you're going to teach it in school, it should be taught before history. <laughs> sure. Because when you look at a lot of the things you learn in history, they're inher- they are inherently biased. Mm. So you're actually not even asking the questions Absolute. because what you're assuming point. that what was given to you was actually absolute great, truth. Great point. Right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you know, there. But we, we spoke about earlier, like once you have the information, yeah. that's not it. Now you have to now act on it. Yeah. So if you develop the skill to debate, yeah. if you've developed the skill to hear another side, yeah. if you've developed the skill to take what you believed to be true, yes. what this person believed to be true, um, figure out how to filter out things that are still gray and things that are absolutes, and then act on those things, you actually create better outcomes yes. and better designs. I think focus on things you can actually control. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to make change happen, leave tech SF, move to DC, <laughs> and and work, like be next to where the problem is, right? Advocacy problems happen at the local level, yeah. sure. But we're arguing about things that are at the federal level, and yeah. that stuff happens in DC. Yes. You want to make and there are plenty and the government is hiring, organizations in DC are hiring. So I think the better thing to do is either control the things that you can control, uh, advocate for your viewpoint, but don't start a shouting match about it, mm-hmm. or move to where the problem is and shout and talk to people and learn about the other side and and kind of galvanize and mobilize people that way. Um, I don't think us, you know, I, this is why I don't tweet a lot. Well, I tweet a lot, but now it's about high resolution. But I, like the reason I don't tweet about policy a lot is I don't think any politicians are reading my tweets, and I don't think most of the electorate is reading my my tweets. And so, yeah. by me shouting, it's I mean I'm I'm not really pushing the needle. I focus yeah. on the things I can control. Uh, focus on the micro, not the macro. Uh, and I think change happens bottoms up that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, Scott. Uh, oh, sorry, Stuart. I hope that that was uh, a useful answer for you. Um, happy to expand on it a little bit more if you want to tweet us any more questions about it. But um, why don't we get one light question and and then we can go ahead and close out the our whole bonus, thing. Our, our whole thing. This is that was like a oh, heavy. That was like a heavy answer. Yeah. Um, so, uh, all right. Andu Potorak at Andu Potorak asks us, can we get a sneak peek for season two? 
Will you interview design leaders from around the globe rather than just in the U.S. at this time? Should we go ahead and show them the uh, yeah, let's show Series it. Two preview? Yep. All right, first, first time, time ever. World preview, high resolution, Series Two. Thank you.